Yes. Amen. Let's continue to sing. Page 324. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Senator ushers come forward to receive our offering. I remind you that everything you give on Wednesday night supports our Bible conference in the fall, helps us to provide lodging and the food that we provide to the many guests that come in. So let me encourage all of you to give something tonight, and the Lord will bless you for it. Also encourage you to be praying about your giving toward the building fund over the course of the next several months. Uh, preparations are being made now for the new addition in the back as well as the renovation of the uh, building in the middle for our preschools. So I want you to be praying much about that. They're doing all the drawings now, and hopefully in a few weeks, as soon as that's done, permits are got, then they will be getting started, hopefully even before the chance of Joash comes around. But if you want to give something every week, I have uh, been given a certain amount every week to the building fund. You may want to do the same thing, and all of it will go in that a building fund and help us to pay for all the construction that will be going on here in a few weeks. And I also hope you've been praying now about the uh, 
March the 25th, our three Super Sundays that are coming up, the first in Revival Sunday, March the 25th, and Brother Hurt will be here. And, of course, those three Sundays, uh, Revival Sunday and then Resurrection Sunday, Mother's Day we're calling Relative Sunday because that's the day we put forth a special effort to reach our family. And on those three particular Sundays, I want everybody to bring someone those days and everybody working hard to get someone here, starting with the Sunday Revival Sunday, March the 25th. We want to see this place full. and we want to see folks saved. That's what we're praying for. So I hope many of you are praying about that. And you're already starting to invite people to come to get as many people as you can here for those three Sundays. Let's pray now and you give. Father, thank you now for all you're doing. We know that you are Lord and you will provide. So we ask you, Lord, just to glorify yourself in all that is done and meet every need. Bless the service tonight, our study in the scriptures, and we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you, Misty. Let's turn to the book of Exodus chapter 27, the book of Exodus chapter 27, and we continue our look at the tabernacle. You should have got a little sheet as you came in, and there's a uh, black and white on the front of that the brochure there for you to give you an idea of what we're talking about. And I'll point out a few things as we go through our study tonight, as we look at it and to give you an idea of what we're looking at. Let's stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. Uh, The book of Exodus chapter 27, let me read to you just one verse of Scripture, and then we'll look at other verses within this chapter. And tonight we're going to think about the court. Last Wednesday night I gave you just an introduction to the tabernacle, and we'll review that in just a moment. But I want you to look at verse 9. And tonight we'll consider the court of the tabernacle. Verse 9, the Bible said, And thou shalt make the court of the tabernacle. goes on to describe for the south side, Southward there shall be hangings for the court of fine twine linen of a hundred cubits long for one side. But notice in particular the first statement there, Thou shalt make the court of the tabernacle. Thank you. May be seated. Let's pray. And then tonight, we'll consider a few things from the Scripture and learn a little bit more about the tabernacle. Our Father, tonight, in Jesus' name, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We do pray, Lord, that we would allow nothing in our life that would extinguish the fire in our heart or the light in our life. But, Father, we keep our hearts burning and keep the light burning in our life that we would honor and glorify you in every little detail. Father, we ask you to help us now 
This old flesh doesn't want to glorify God, but you know our hearts that we want to glorify you. So we pray that Jesus Christ would be Lord of all of our lives and that he would have uh, Lord of everything that we do, be Lord of all that we do. Now, Father, bless our study tonight. Give us a heart for your word. Give us a mind to understand the word of God and the spirit of God to make it real to us. So bless our time tonight, for it is in Jesus' name we pray, and for his sake we ask these things. Amen. Now, in our brochure, you'll notice there I've got blanks for you because I want you to write, as I said last Wednesday night, if you can read it, hear it, and write it, you'll have a better chance of retaining it. But last Wednesday night, as I said, we began looking at the tabernacle, and I gave you an introduction to the tabernacle. And I made mention there's probably no subject in the Bible that plays more of a part of the Bible than the tabernacle. There's over 51 chapters in the Bible that the tabernacle is the subject of that chapter. 51 chapters. That is a large place in the Word of God. And if you recall, we looked at the tabernacle and thought about the tabernacle. The name tabernacle itself simply speaks of a tent or a dwelling place. The tabernacle, we often refer to the whole structure as the tabernacle, but really the tabernacle is the structure within an enclosed area. It is the enclosed area that we're going to consider tonight, but the tabernacle is really that structure on the one end of it, a special tent that was made there. That is the tabernacle, even though we refer to all of it as the tabernacle. But the tabernacle, the word tabernacle simply means a tent or a dwelling place. As we saw, it was the dwelling place of the Lord. We found that also in the Bible it is called a sanctuary, referring to the, the fact that it is set apart from any other structure in any other building. It was a dwelling place of God, thereby making it a sanctuary or a place set apart, a holy place. It was called, it's also called the tent of the testimony, the tabernacle of witness. It is called the house of the Lord, the tabernacle of the Lord, and the tent of the congregation. It is the tent of the congregations where the children of Israel came to worship. It is where the children of Israel came to offer sacrifices unto the Lord. We noticed in our, in our introduction there, we looked at three things to give us a brief understanding of the tabernacle. We thought about the purpose of the tabernacle, and we saw that there was basically a twofold purpose for the tabernacle. The scripture there spoke about how God said at the tabernacle, He said, I will meet you there, and I will dwell there. We saw that the, the purpose of the tabernacle, the twofold purpose of the tabernacle was one, it was a witness of God's relationship with His people. He said, There I will meet you. It was the place that God met man. It was the place where man met God. It spoke of a relationship between God and man, man and God, reminding us that man can have a relationship with God and God can have a relationship with man. It was a witness to God's relationship with his people. It was also a witness of God's residence among his people. He said, I will dwell there. It was an earthly house for the Lord. It was a building or a tent or a structure in which the very presence of God dwelt. We not only thought about the purpose of the tabernacle, but we also thought about the pattern of the tabernacle or the pattern that was given to Moses for the tabernacle. And we saw as we looked at the tabernacle, we saw how it was fashioned. We looked a little bit at its layout. 
We saw how the tabernacle was formed. We looked at the different materials uh, that were used in, this, in the construction of the tabernacle. Some of those we'll look at tonight. And we also saw how it was furnished. And we saw that in the outer court, court, court was a brazen altar and a laver. And then when you went in the tabernacle itself, there were other items there, such as the golden candlestick, the table of showbread, the altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant, and the mercy seat, the mercy seat really being a lid to the Ark of the Covenant. And then the third and the final thing we saw was the pictures in the tabernacle or how the tabernacle is symbolic of certain things. We saw that it was symbolic of the Christ, the Lord Jesus, and we saw how that every item in the tabernacle was symbolic of Christ in some way. And we also saw that not only was it symbolic of Christ, but it is also symbolic of the Christian. And we see certain things about the Christian life in the tabernacle. So as a symbolic or sim, uh, symbolism that was given to us to demonstrate certain truth that has been given to us by God. That's the overview. That was the introduction as we learned just a little bit about it. Now let's begin moving our way through the tabernacle and look at, at particular uh, parts of the tabernacle and certain items of the tabernacle. Beginning tonight by looking at the court. In our second study, we want to look at the court or what sometimes is called the outer court or sometimes called the courtyard of the temple. In Exodus 27 verse 9, we read a moment ago how God gave Moses these instructions. He said, thou shalt make the court of the tabernacle. Now, the word court that is used in verse 9 is a word that simply means an enclosure. It literally describes a yard that is enclosed by a fence. As I said a moment ago, oftentimes when we talk about the tabernacle or say tabernacle, we refer to the whole structure. But really the tabernacle, if you look at the picture on the front of your brochure, is the tent that is at the back end on our picture of the outer court. The part that we're looking at tonight is that fence that surrounds the tabernacle. That is called the court. That is called the outer court or the courtyard of the tabernacle. Again, the word court simply referring to an enclosure or a yard that is enclosed in a fence. Now, you'll find that the court served basically two reasons. For those on the outside, it served as a barrier. It served as a wall of separation. It set God apart and it separated man from God or separated those who did not know God from the Lord. It was a wall or a barrier to keep those on the outside out. It symbolized how that man is separated from God. And if man is to get to God, then there's certain steps that have to be taken in order for man to get into the presence of God. You've got to come through the door. You've got to come by the brazen altar. You've got to come, we might say, through Christ by the way of the cross. There is no other way to get to God and no other way to come to God except through those, through those steps. And so from the outside, it was a wall, a barrier to keep men out and to separate men from God. But it was also... It demonstrated the fact that to the outside world, this was a holy place. This was set apart. It was a dwelling place, a sanctuary. And it so showed the separation between the outside world and the habitation of God. He's a holy God. He is a righteous God. And so this outer court there, this fence that went around the tabernacle, symbolized that God is holy and that the habitation of the Lord is holy. To those on the inside, it served as a place of protection. 
It served as a place where man fellowship with God or where man met God. So to the outside, it symbolized separation. But to the inside, those on the inside, it symbolized how man has a relationship with God and can enjoy all that comes from that relationship. You'll find as you read the Bible, especially the Psalms, that the psalmist many times referred to the court. Many times they spoke of going to the court, and they referred to the court in many different ways. Psalm 96 and verse 8, the Bible said, Give unto the Lord glory due unto his name, bring an offering, and come into his courts. Of course, the psalmist was referring to the courts at the temple, and not which was the permanent structure the tabernacle gave away to, but basically the same idea, coming into his courts. Psalm 92, 13, those that be planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our Lord. Psalm 84, 2, my soul longeth, the psalmist said, yea, even fainteth for the courts of the Lord, and my flesh and heart crieth out for the living God. I love Psalm 100 and verse 4, enter into his gates, with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. So whenever you're reading the Psalms and the psalmist refers to the court or the courts, it is referring to either in the tabernacle or the temple, that area that is outside, enclosed, outside the tabernacle, but that area that encloses the tabernacle itself, the court, the courtyard, or the court of the tabernacle. Now, saying all of that, let me just briefly point out three things tonight about the court of the tabernacle. Write these three things down as they're put on the screen, fill in the blank there, and follow me tonight in the Scripture. The first thing that I want to point out to you is the measurements of the court. The measurements of the court. When you look in Exodus 27, you find that the measurements of the court, or the outer court, are given. Now let me break the measurements down into two categories. The first one I want you to notice is the measurements of the courtyard. The measurements of the courtyard. And you'll find in Exodus 27 that these measurements are given by the points of the compass. For example, verse 9, we read a moment ago. He said, Thou shalt make the court of the tabernacle. For the south side, southward, there shall be hangings for the court of fine twin linen of a hundred cubits long for one side. He tells us in verse 9 that the north side or the south side of the tabernacle was a hundred cubits long. Now, the word cubit there describes a, a standard of measurement that was known in those days. The word cubit literally means the measure of the forearm, speaking of that which is below the elbow. And basically, it was about 18 to 21 inches, but from, they would measure something from the elbow down. They would call that a cubit. And when the Bible speaks about a cubit, a hundred cubits there, roughly that gives us about 150 feet. So the south side was to be 150 or 150 feet or 100 cubits. You notice in verse 11 that the north side is given. And likewise, for the north side in length, there shall be hangings of 100 cubits long. Again, the south side was 100 cubits long or 150 feet long. And the south side was 150 feet long as well. Notice down in verse 12, you're given the measurements of the west side. And for the breadth of the court or the width of the court, on the west side shall be hangings of 
50 cubits. So on the south side is 150 foot long. On the north side, 150 foot long. On the west end or the west side, it was up 50 or rather it was 50 cubits wide, which would give us roughly 75 feet wide. And then in verse 13, you see the measurements for the east side and the breadth of the length or the width of the court on the east side eastward shall be 50 cubits or 75 feet wide. So when you talk about the measurement of the courtyard, you're talking about an enclosure that is 150 foot long. It is 75 feet wide. But there's something else I want you to notice the measurements of, and that is not only the measurements of the courtyard, but second of all, the measurements of the curtain. Now, if you look at your picture on your brochure there, you see what I mean when we talk about the fence or the court that surrounds the tabernacle. But if you notice carefully, you see that what the fence is made of is curtains that are hanging there. Now, this is a very simple diagram of it or picture of it, but you get the idea. You see that it's made of curtains. It is a curtain hanging there that surrounds the tent. Now, this enclosure, as verse 9 talks about, was made of curtains that are called hangings. Look at verse 9 again. He said, there shall be hangings for the court. The word hanging there talks about a curtain or curtains. He talks about hangings throughout Exodus here. He's talking about curtains. Now, you'll find as you work your way through Exodus 27 and other chapters in the book of Exodus that these curtains were attached uh, by hooks. They were attached to rods or connecting rods. You notice down in verse 17, he talks about how the tabernacle was filleted with. You see that? All the pillars round about the court shall be filleted with silver. The phrase filleted there simply means they shall be connected. He's talking about connected rods. He calls them fillets. The Bible calls them fillets on many different occasions. But when you find that phrase fillets or filleted with, it is talking about these 60 connecting rods. And the curtains would hang on these 60 connecting rods. They were attached by hooks to these connecting rods. You'd also find that these rods were attached to 60 pillars, or we would simply say poles, that would form a frame. These poles, there were 60 of them, and in between, each one of these connecting rods was of equal length, and they were connected to the top of the pole. And when they were connected to the pole, it formed like a freestanding frame that stood around the tabernacle. And on that freestanding frame is where they would take the hooks and they would hang these curtains. You'll also find in chapter 36 in verse 38, you can jot the reference down, it talks about how there were 60 captors, capitors, or as we would call them, caps, on the pillars. These poles, at the very top of them, they had a silver cap that was placed on them. They were somewhat a decorative piece that was added to the top of the pole. You'll also notice that each one of these 60 pillars or 60 poles, verse 17 describes them, were set in 60 sockets. Verse 17 speaks of them, all the pillars round about the court shall be connected with rods of silver and their hooks shall be of silver and their sockets, it speaks of. This was the base. It's like a little block, was a block that was buried down in the sand. 
There was a hole inside that block, and the poles of the pillars were set, were put down into those holes, and they supported them. And then, of course, at the top, the connecting rods that held them together, the cap on top of each one of the pillars, and the hooks that hung the curtains upon these. Now, these connecting rods kept each pole separated by an equal distance, and they were held erect by 120 cords or a hun- and 120 pins, as the Bible calls them, which simply means tent pegs. Now, in verse 18, you see the measurements of this curtain. Here's this curtain now hanging by these hooks on these connecting rods. And verse 18 gives us the dimensions or the measurements of the curtains. And the length of the cord shall be 100 cubits. That's 150 foot long. And the breadth 50 everywhere. That's 75 feet wide. And the height, here's our measurement, the height, five cubits of fine twin linen and their sockets of brass. It's 150 foot long, 75 feet wide, and seven and a half foot tall. So when he talks about five cubits, it's talking about about seven and a half to eight foot tall. So you're given the measurements of the court, the measurements of the courtyard, the measurements of the curtain. Again, 150 foot long, 75 feet wide, seven and a half to eight foot tall. So that's how high, that's how long these curtains were. But look at the second thing. Not only do you see the measurements of the court, but also you see the materials for the court. Now, just like specific measurements was given to Moses by God, there were specific instructions given to Moses for the materials that would be used in the courtyard. In fact, every little detail of the tabernacle was given to Moses by God. He knew exactly what he was supposed to do, and he didn't deviate from that pattern one iota. But he gave him specific instructions for how large it was to be, the measurements, and also for what was to be used in each particular item. Now, let me just point out a few of them. First of all, we see in verse 9 that the curtain was to be made of white, fine, or fine twine linen. Look at verse 9 again. The Bible said, And thou shalt make the core of the tabernacle. You know, so latter part, there shall be hangings for the cord of fine twine linen. The curtain was made of fine twine linen. The pillars, the second item I point out, the pillars or the poles. Now, this is the only item in the tabernacle that we are not specifically told what it was made of. But most everybody agrees and assumes that since the boards that were used as the walls of the tabernacle itself were made of acacia wood, or shittim wood as the Bible calls it, that these poles were made of acacia wood as well, which was a very, very enduring type of wood. So the pillars were made of acacia wood. Again, the only part of the tabernacle that we are not specifically told what the material is, but most believe acacia wood. The sockets, you find in verse 10, that the sockets, that is the base of each pole, that which was buried in the sand, that which the poles were slipped down into, they were made of brass. Verse 10 said, And the hooks and the pillars and their fillets shall, verse, tw- verse 10, And the 20 pillars thereof and their 20 sockets shall be of brass. So we find that the sockets were made of brass. Verse 10, you'll also find that the hooks and the connecting rods were made of silver. The hooks of the pillars 
and their fillets or connecting rods shall be of silver. So you find these materials involve fine twine linen, you find acacia wood, you find brass, and you find silver. Now, understanding all that, let me give you the third and the final thing, which really is the heart of everything we're looking at, and that is the meaning of the court. Here is the measurements, here is the materials, but what does it all mean? Why is it, why does God give these instructions to Moses, and what is being symbolized, and what is being taught in all of these items, and these materials, and the designation of certain materials? Well, as I said last week, basically there are two things symbolized in the tabernacle. You see how Christ is pictured, and you see how the Christian is pictured. Let's begin by looking at Christ, how Christ is pictured in the tabernacle. Take the first item that we mentioned a moment ago, and that is the curtain itself. This hanging curtain, this curtain is about seven and a half to eight foot tall, and the Bible tells us that it was made of fine twine linen. Now, as many of you are interested in typology, and you know much of this, but as you find, study your Bible, you'll find that linen in the Bible is always a type of righteousness. You remember in Revelation 19, verse 8, where the Bible spoke about the marriage supper of the Lamb, and there it describes how that the saints, uh, how they were robed with a certain garment, and that garment is called the fine linen of the saints, and it is described as the fine linen, which is the righteousness of the saints. Fine linen in the Bible is symbolic of righteousness. Now, when we come to the tabernacle, again, everything about it was saying something about God's plan of redemption. Everything about it was saying something. This is how man gets to God. God meets man here. Man meets God here. And everything is symbolizing what brings about this relationship. Why God can come to man. Why man can come to God. It symbolizes Jesus Christ. Now, when we think about the curtains of the fine linen, it is symbolic of the righteousness of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the righteous one. He is the spotless one. He is the sinless one. And so when a believer, anybody, looked upon that outer court and saw that wall, it was symbolic of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You take the pillars of the tabernacle. They were made of wood. You find as you study the Bible that wood in the Bible is always symbolic of humanity. It is that which has grew on the earth, that which has been created on the earth, that which is of this world and of this life. Wood in the Bible, again, is symbolic of humanity. The wooden pillars of the acacia poles that are used here, poles made of acacia wood, they remind us, and they're symbolic, of the perfect humanity of Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to understand something. There has never been a moment that Jesus Christ did not exist. In fact, he had no beginning. Say amen. Are you you with me tonight? Are you asleep? Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. Never been a moment. He did not exist, had no beginning. He always has been, and He always will be. He is the eternal Son. But there was an hour that God Himself, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son, clothed Himself with humanity, robed Himself with human flesh, took upon Himself a body that had been prepared for Him, as Hebrews described. And it was Emmanuel, God in the flesh or God with us. Jesus Christ became a man. 
Even though he was God, he became a man. Became a man like me. He became an in, a human being just like everyone in this room. He was as much human being as we are human being. But yet at the same time, he was just as much God. There was never a moment that he wasn't God. He was always God, but he was the God-man. He became one that dwelled among us that he might die, come, might die, might be with us and become one of us that he might die for us. But he was the perfect human being. He's without sin, without spot, without blemish. I think there's so much symbolized in the Bible and even in statements that are made. For example, remember Pilate? He washed his hands and said, I find no fault in this man. And for three days, a period of time that Jesus in his trial and his arrest and his trial to the time of his crucifixion. And right prior to the cru crucifixion, Pilate said, I find no fault in this man. In those days, the lambs that were to be offered as a sacrifice were shut up for three and a half days. And during that three and a half days, they would be examined. They would be examined. Their ears would be examined. Their hoofs would be examined. Their mouth would be examined because it could not be a sore. There could not be a blemish. It could not be a scar. There could be one thing on the sacrifices that was offered. And if they, as they were put up and examined, then if they were found to be spotless and, with, spotless and without blemish, and then they were offered a sacrifice. And they examined Christ and they put him before trials and courts and whatever. But Pilate had to say, I find no fault in this man. He is the sinless one, the perfect human. But that's what he had to be. You see, he had to be a perfect human in order to die for our sins. That's why he was virgin born. For those who would deny the virgin birth and tear down the virgin birth, they're denying the very thing that brings us salvation. Jesus Christ had to be born of a virgin. If he had been born of man, by man, he would have inherited a sinful nature like everyone in this room. But he did not. He was not born of man. He was born of woman. And because he was not born of man, he was not defiled as we are. He was a sinless one, a perfect human being. That's what the pillars are representative of. You take the sockets. The Bible tells us the sockets were made of brass. Brass in the Bible is symbolic of judgment, the fires of judgment, a burning brass. It is always a sim symbol of judgment. The brass sockets, these little uh, blocks that you might say that were buried down in the sand in which the poles were slipped down into to, give them to, to cause them to stand upright. Uh, these were symbolic of Christ and how that he endured our judgment on the cross. He became man. And the reason he became man was to be with us and one of us and one for us, as I said a moment ago, but a sinless man that he might take our place on the cross. You see, no other human being could die in our stead. For example, say I was guilty of a crime. And somebody in this room tonight, let's say Eddie Goddard. I don't know that he would do this for me, but here I am, and I'm guilty of something, and Eddie loves me, and, and he cares for me, and we all know his compassion. He comes forward and says, Brother Ken, I'm going to take your place. I'm going to serve your time. And I say, thank God for you, Eddie. You can take my time. But then the judge says, oh, no, no, no. We look at our records here, and we find out, Mr. Goddard, you are just as guilty as he is, for you've committed the same crime. You can't take his place. You've got to pay for your crime. 
And see, no man could take the place of another man and atone for sin. It had to be somebody that had never sinned. It had to be somebody that was not guilty. And that's why Jesus Christ became man, the perfect human, that he might take the place of those who had sinned. And when he died on the cross, he bore my judgment for sin. He endured the fires of judgment on Calvary. He took my place. What should have been mine became his. He bore my sin. He bore my hell. The judgment and the wrath of God was poured out on him. That is what the brass is symbolic of. But then thirdly, or fourthly, I should say, there are the capitors or caps, as we would call them, and the hooks and the connecting rods. These are the capitors, as Exodus 36 calls them, were little caps that were put on top of the poles. They were an ornamental piece that was put on the top of each one of these 60 poles. They were made of silver. Also, the hooks that held the curtains of the connecting rods were made of silver. And the connecting rods themselves, they were made of silver. Well, you'll find in the Bible that silver is symbolic of redemption. In fact, I may, for it's over with, bring a message on how they raised all these materials. And where they got all these things, when they left Egypt, they borrowed them from the Egyptians. They took them from the Egyptians. And there came an hour that God called for a free will offering on the part of everybody. And everybody brought in all the things that they had carried out of Egypt that night. And they donated them to the work of God. And the tabernacle was built. But these, the silver that was gathered and used for these items was gathered from what was called redemption money. Money that was paid for redeem, redeeming things. The silver, the redemption money, redeeming matters. Silver in the Bible is symbolic of redemption. Now, when you look at that silver on the tabernacle poles, that little uh, silver cap, those silver hooks, and those silver connecting bars, it is reminding us of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. That he came to this earth to die for us, to redeem us from our sins. That Jesus Christ is the Redeemer. He is the only Redeemer. As I've said before, we're not all going down different roads, headed into the same place. There is only one road, and there's only one road that leads to heaven, and that's through Jesus Christ, and plus nothing and minus nothing. Christ is the Redeemer. Silver is symbolic of our redemption and his redemptive work. Then you take the pegs themselves. They were also made of brass. And they were made of brass, which is symbolic of judgment. But there's something interesting about them I think is shown in these pegs. As you see the picture there, the tent stakes drove into the ground. And what you would have is half of the tent peg buried in the ground and the other half sticking out of the ground. The part that is buried in the ground gave it security. And the part sticking out of the ground is what they tied the cords or the ropes to as they pulled and held the curtains up or the tent uh, poles up and whatever there. I found in one writing that one, uh, one book, one writer referred to it this way, and he talked about these pegs driven in the ground, that they were symbolic of Christ and his death and his burial, how he would, as, would be placed into the ground. And even though we know he's put in a tomb, but yet in death, into the ground. But yet the part that is sticking out is symbolic that he didn't stay in the ground or he didn't stay in the grave, but he got up on the third day, glory be to God. They're symbolic of Christ who died for our sins, was buried, but he rose again on the third day for our justification. 
And then the cords. I find in the Bible that cords are symbolic of love. Symbolic of love. Hosea 11.4 talked about, I will draw with cords of a man and with bands of love. Cords are symbolic of love. And when we find these cords here, they're symbolic of the love of Jesus Christ. Why did Christ become man? Why did he come to this earth? Why did he go through the fires of judgment? Why did he go through everything that he went through? Why? Because he loved man. And he wanted to be man's redeemer. So in the tabernacle, God took every little detail to say something and to symbolize something about Jesus Christ. But then the last and the final thing. Not only is Christ symbolized in the tabernacle, but also the Christian is pictured in the tabernacle. Take again the curtain. It said a moment ago or at the very beginning that the curtain served as a wall. Is a wall that separated the outside from the inside. The curtain of the tabernacle itself reminds us that man is separated from God. And the reason we're separated from God is because God is holy. Man is sinful. And God is holy and man in his sinfulness cannot dwell in the presence of God. Psalmist spoke about how God can't even look upon iniquity. He is so holy. He is a holy God. And because he is holy and we have sinned, fallen short, we cannot come to God on our own. We are separated from God. But I said that the fine linen there is symbolic of righteousness. Man is separated from God, but yet he is brought into a relationship with God because of righteousness. Now, what do I mean? You know what happened to you? There's a word in the New Testament called imputed. And the word imputed found in the book of Romans. It's a word that simply means that which has been ascribed to our account or that we were bankrupt before God. There was no way we could be right with God, no way we could come to God, but Jesus Christ imputed his righteousness to our account. In other words, I am made accepted in the beloved, as Ephesians 1 said. I am accepted because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I want you to understand something tonight. You will not go to heaven because of how good you are. You be a good man. You be an outstanding moral man. You be the best citizen in Hamilton County and still die and go to hell. God don't let you into heaven because of who you are. God let you into heaven because of what Christ has done. His righteousness has been credited to our account. We are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Those on the inside, symbolic that they were within that righteousness. We are separated from God, but we're in because of his righteousness. The curtains are also symbolic of our witness to the world. God is a holy God. His people would come upon the tabernacle in the desert there that would see this fenced-in tent. And he separated, barred everybody from, uh, from going inside that was not, uh, could not get in, was not supposed to be in there, not qualified to get on the inside. It's a symbol or his witness to the world that that on the inside is holy. God dwells here. He is a holy God. The curtain, as far as the believer is concerned, is a symbolic, a symbolic of our witness to this world. That we're a witness to this world that 
that God, the kind of God that we serve and the kind of God that we love and the kind of God that we worship, He is holy. Let us therefore be holy. You take the brass sockets. I mentioned brass was symbolic of judgment and symbolic of the fact that our sin has been judged. The hooks of silver, we are joined to Christ by His redemptive work. Through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, we are joined unto the Father. We have a relationship with God, as I said, not because of who we are or what we've done, but because of Jesus Christ and His redemptive work. The connecting rods, not only are we joined to Christ by His redemptive work, but everyone else is joined. We are joined with other believers because of His redemptive work. Do you realize tonight that everybody in this room is a brother and sister because of their relationship to Jesus Christ? And what a wonderful relationship it is. Some of you understand this, but sometimes you are closer to your brother in Christ than you are your own physical family. God gives you such a wonderful relationship with one another and you're bound together. And just like these connecting rods connected every pole and everything together, we are not only joined to Christ as the hooks would symbolize by His redemptive work, but we're also joined with other believers because of His redemptive work. We are a family. Now, I know a lot of places that they, you wouldn't think there's a family. Praise God, you think it was a herd of goats in there together. But, I mean, we're a family. We've been joined together by our relationship with Jesus Christ. You take the caps of silver on top of the poles. As I said a moment ago, these were really a little ornamental piece just to cap the top of the pole. Ornamental piece made of silver. Symbolic of the fact that his redemptive work has beautified our lives. Think about how ugly we were before God saved us. How messed up many of our lives were. How sin had wrecked and ruined and destroyed us and taken many, not everybody, but had taken many down into the gutter. But yet one day through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, as we say in our faith visit, I had a life-changing experience. Made a different person out of us. Beautified our life and gave us something to glorify God. And then the cords themselves, symbolic of our assurance and our security. So the cords gave strength to the frame. The frame connected together and held. It's a freestanding frame, but yet the cords there gave it strength from the elements of the weather blowing or whatever there, giving it strength and giving it security. I want you to understand something tonight. I'm going to heaven one of these days, and I'm going to heaven because what Jesus Christ did for me. And not only am I going to heaven, but I want to say this, I know I'm going to heaven. You say, you act like you really believe you're going. I'm glad you got that impression. I am. There's no buts, nips about it. I know I'm going. I won't tell you why. Because my security lies in what Jesus Christ has done for me. I've accepted that. I'm resting on that. I'm not depending on anything I have done. I'm not depending on getting to heaven. The fact that I'm a Baptist or been baptized or I've been preaching the biggest part of my life. No, I'm depending on what Jesus Christ has done. And that is my security. I know that I'm saved. And I know that I'm going to heaven one day. And you don't have to worry about it. That is what the cord symbolized. Take your prayer sheet tonight. That is our thoughts on the court. And what a wonderful story it is and what a wonderful model it is to remind us of so many wonderful things about our relationship with Jesus Christ. We'll look at the gate of the door next Wednesday night. But look at our prayer sheet tonight. As we always close our midweek services out, we pray for our Missionary of the Week and a Church of the Week. Our Missionary of the Week is Ralph Rochelle. 
serving in Japan with Baptist International Missions Incorporated. The Burchells, uh, we support them here, and we want to be praying for their work in Japan. Our Church of the Week is, of course, Brother David Burkhart, one of our own. God has sent out. How many of you saw him on the news last night? Wasn't that a good story? Mary called and told me he's on there, and I called Brother David. I said, I want to get your autograph. You look good on the news tonight. But it was a good story and a wonderful testimony. It's a miracle. But we want to pray for Corvin Road Baptist Church in Dayton and Brother David Burkhart. We want to pray for him. And, of course, Sunday we're receiving a special offering for David. And so we wanted to remember that tonight in prayer in a special way. Our hospital is Memorial Hospital, Alex Paget. That had taken him back early this morning. And we want to be praying for Alex, also Barbara Cole. And she's continuing to do well. We want to continue to pray for her and lift her up to God. Lucille Holmes had surgery this week. She'll be going home tomorrow, Lord willing. Billy Jackson at Erlanger Hospital. And then Nevada Jeffries at Children's. And then Regina Berry will be having surgery Friday at Memorial Auditorium. Or Memorial Auditorium, Memorial Atrium. They're going to make a big show of it. You know what I mean? <laughs> Regina's inviting everybody to come in and see it. She's expecting about 5,000 for it there. <laughs> Memorial Atrium. Let me slow my reading down. And then add this one more name to your list, Cordelia Dunn. She is at East Ridge Hospital and will be running some tests tomorrow. And, of course, let's remember Roy Phipps and the death of his stepmother, and her funeral was on Monday. All of you that will, let's come together around the altar. Let's pray. Let's take these things to the Lord. Let's pray now for the Rochelle family. Let's pray for uh, Corvin Road, David Burkhart. Let's pray for our three Super Sundays. Ask the Lord to lay somebody on your heart. Ask the Lord to help you to get someone here that Sunday. Let's pray that many, many people will be saved. The spirit of revival will be in our services. Let's pray for all these things and lift them up to the Lord. Father, tonight, in the name of Jesus Christ, we want to thank you for your redemptive work. Thank you for the great object lesson that you gave us in history to remind us of our salvation, the details of our salvation, all you've done for us. For these things, we give you praise. And we thank you so much for your goodness to us. We don't deserve to be a child of God, but we thank you by grace. Through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, we are accepted and we thank you. Father, tonight we come to pray for others. Thank you for what you're doing here, but we're mindful of others. We pray tonight for the Burchell family in Japan. We ask you to bless the work of God throughout that country. Thank you for the outstanding ministries that are in that nation. I pray, Lord, that you'd open the hearts of the Japanese people to Christ, to be open and receptive to the gospel. Bless the Brochelles and their area of service, their church, and their ministry. Meet every need they might have. We thank you, Lord, for sustaining Brother David. What a miracle. What a testimony he is to God's power. And I pray you bless his church. And, and I pray you prosper. That may wonderful things be done. They have revival coming up in a few weeks, just the days before ours. Bless the meeting there. Touch it in a special way. But bless Brother David. And Linda, and use them there. Thank you for the years of service they gave here. And what a blessing they were to our church and how dear they are to all of our hearts. Bless them, Lord, and use them. Do great things for them and through them and with them. And then, Father, we pray tonight for our folks in the hospital. We ask you to, to be with them and touch them. We pray for Alex. You know his needs. We pray, Lord, that you would meet those needs. 
Continue to touch Barbara. We pray, Lord, for her salvation. We pray, Lord, for the others, for Lucille. We ask you to continue to bless her and watch over her. We pray for Billy Jackson. Need to touch him and be with his family. And for the little Jeffrey's baby. And then for Regina to have surgery, as well as Miss Dunn to be having tests tomorrow. All of these are church family. We lift them up to you, Lord, that you would minister to them physically, spiritually in, their, in these days. I pray you'd meet their needs. And then, Father, we pray for the Lord's day, that the power and the presence of God be upon us. I pray you'd add to the church. People be brought to Christ. Bless tomorrow night as our faith teams go out. May we have the joy and the privilege of winning someone to Christ tomorrow night. Thank you, Lord, for the great number that's participating and learning how to be a witness for Jesus Christ. Thank you for the commitment that they have made for these 16 weeks of their life. Bless them, Lord, as they go out tomorrow night. Bless our three Super Sundays coming up, Revival Sunday. Lord, may we bring people. May everybody bring someone. May we see people saved that day. Easter Sunday, what an opportunity to get folk in church that normally don't come. We pray for the power of God to be present that day, and many will be brought to Christ. And then, Lord, for Mother's Day, as we seek to reach our families, our relatives, Lord, may we see many of our family come to Christ. May that be a day that we see many, many prayers answered. So, Father, we lift all these things up to you. We believe in the power of prayer. We know when we come and talk to you that we actually enter in your presence and talk to you. So we lay these things before you and ask you to move in them tonight. Thank you again for your love. Thank you for this place. Continue to bless it and prosper it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.